Okay, Judges chapter 14, if you're not turned there yet. Chapter 14, 15, and 16 of Judges. Zero in now on really, if you want to call it a, a character study on the life of Samson, one of the more famous uh, judges that many of us typically kind of know uh, in the book of Judges historically. If we have some familiarity with the Bible, many of us have heard of or have some familiarity with the life of this man, Samson. Uh, chapter 13 recorded really the instruction that God gave to his parents who were barren and unable to conceive that they were going to have this son who is going to be appointed by God uh, to begin, it said, to bring deliverance from the Philistines who had been oppressing Israel for the last 40 years because of their disobedience. And Samson was to be a special child. He was to be set apart from his mother's womb. Remember with what was often referred to in Numbers chapter 6 as the Nazarite vow. And again, remember the Nazarite vow was something that would typically, according to number six, be entered into willingly or voluntarily. It wasn't a required thing, but a person, a man or a woman uh, could take a Nazarite vow. It could be for any period of time. It could be for a week. It could be for a month. It could be for a year. It was a time where you just sort of chose uh, voluntarily to separate your life unto the Lord, to kind of consecrate yourself for a time period to God or maybe to God's purposes or to his work in some extent and together with that remember there were some things that the Nazarite was to abstain from as sort of an outward indication of that vow as well as it had certainly some symbolic connection to their life of separation remember they were to have nothing to do with the fruit of the vine they weren't to drink wine or even have anything to do with vineyards or anything of that nature uh, they were to abstain as well from any razor or cutting of their hair they were to just let their hair uh, grow during that time of their vow and then thirdly they were to abstain from touching anything dead any dead carcass or having any defilement that would make them ceremonially defiled whether it was a loved one that died or in any way they were to have no contact with the dead these were three things that were a part of the Nazarite vow prohibitions that were upon them things they were to abstain from during that time and we're told that Samson's mother was informed that he was to be a Nazarite from the womb all the way to the time of his death so he was to live a life it seems that this was somewhat unique something different he was to live a life set apart to God consecrated to God and God wanted to use Samson I believe in really great ways however God knowing all things about us uh, Psalm 139 says that God knows all of our days in the sense that all of our days are written in his book before one ever comes to be. Uh, so God's fully aware of every turn we're going to take, right turns and wrong turns. Uh, God's fully aware of every decision we're going to make. He's aware of our thoughts before we even think them. Psalm 139 tells us before a word comes upon our tongue, before it even comes out of our mouth, God already sees that uh, word or that thing we're going to say, whether good or bad, in advance. And sometimes I wonder if he's kind of thinking, oh, no, he's not really going to say that. Is he, re is he really going to say that? Or is she really going to respond that way? And whether it's our words or our thoughts, God knows us intimately, knows every about us and he knew that Samson though he had great purposes for his life was going to exercise this thing that we all have still which is called free will and because Samson would exercise his free will sadly he would not live up to his full potential in God uh, he would opt in many ways really 
to be someone who somewhat squandered his potential in God because of some of the poor choices that he made in his life. We'll see the Nazarite vow and the things he was abstained from. He violates all those things, uh, particularly in these next few chapters as we start to study his life, chapter 14, 15, and 16. Samson is the story of a man who had a great start. I mean, given to parents because of their prayer for a child. I mean, a special miraculous conception in some ways. A woman who had to be healed from her barrenness to be able to conceive a child. God had a plan and purpose for this young man, a calling upon his life. In fact, it tells us at the end of the chapter that from the earliest days as he was beginning to grow, it says the Lord blessed him, verse 24 of chapter 13. And then the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. So, I mean, this glory wonderful start in the Lord but yet he wasted his God-given potential and the primary reason why we'll see in his life is because he was a man who was dominated by his passions and he was not able to self-regulate he was someone who unfortunately whether it was his lust whether it was anger, whether it was pride, whether it was just his impulsive desire for instant gratitude and not being able to wait on God's timing and God's way of doing things. He was someone who had no discipline over his spirit, whether it was his feelings, his cravings, his appetites, his passions, his lusts, in whatever form, he had no personal discipline and because of that, it caused great complications and really a shortfall in his life. He's a man, we'll see, who was empowered by the Spirit and he was able to do really great things. The Spirit of God was upon him. He was anointed. He was empowered. He was very gifted, yet he was a man who succumbed to his desires and passions of his fleshly nature. He was someone who sadly was unable to control his appetite and he was not interested in submitting to anyone. And this was part of his downfall. He had no interest in accountability or submission or cooperation. He was in many ways a, a champion of a man personally, but he was a poor leader spiritually. He never rallied anyone around him. He never did anything to be a leader in Israel. He just sought many times because of his own pride to be a personal champion. And this led to his downfall. He exemplifies really in a lot of ways what James 1 says about that double-minded man or that divided man who it says is unstable in all of his ways. That's the story of Samson. He's the poster child for unstable in all of ways. He's up, he's down. He's doing something and then he's in the flesh right afterwards a few minutes later and he, he sadly is very self-seeking and as a result he squanders away much of his potential and he's a picture in many ways uh, of really the reality that we have from a New Testament perspective when the Bible says that we're saved, we receive the Holy Spirit, we're given everything we need for life and godliness. However, yet we then have a choice day by day. Are we going to walk by faith and walk in the Spirit or are we going to walk in the flesh? All the power and the potential of God is given to us so that sin doesn't have to have dominion over us anymore. We can yield to the Spirit, walk in the power of the Spirit, have victory over sin. However, our flesh is still a present part of our life and every day we then choose. Are we going to walk in the Spirit or are we going to walk in the flesh? And we have that option. And tragically, some people choose to get saved but then live a very carnal uh, secondary, if you would, uh, substandard Christian life because they choose to still live in the flesh though they have the power of the Spirit made available to them. And this many ways is kind of what Samson depicts for us. A man who, again, 
such potential in God. The spirit of God's even upon him and the power and to give him gifting, but yet he's ruled uh, inwardly by his own passion still and the spirit's upon him, but the Holy Spirit's not ruling him within. And this leads to many of his problems. So let's begin looking at the life of Samson here. It tells us in chapter 14, opening up about his life after he's began to grow, the spirits began to move upon his life. And it says, chapter 14, verse 1, now Samson went down. Now, those first two words are somewhat of a depiction of his life. <laughs> he went down. Uh, God intended for him to grow and increase in the things of the Lord, but he went down, that's certainly no pun intended there, to Timnah, to the area of the Philistines. This is enemy territory. And he saw a woman. There's a second problem. He goes down. This is the second problem. He was a he-man, as I said, with a very big she weakness, and we'll see that in this chapter beginning. He saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So notice what Samson's doing. He's wandering. He's not staying within the God-given boundaries that he should remain in. He's starting to wander somewhat, not just literally, circumstantially, but honestly, this is the beginning of what's starting to happen spiritually in his life. He, he's over in Philistine territory. He finds himself wandering around the area of the Philistines among un you know, equally yoked fellowship. He's among unbelievers, pagan people. And as he is wandering spiritually and stepping outside of the boundaries, maybe of where he should be to be safe and stable spiritually, this leads then to temptation being presented to him. It's kind of like David. It tells us of David's life that at the time when kings go out to war, David remained home. So at a time when David should have been out on the battlefield, engaged in the Lord's battles, he would have been safer. And keep in mind, warfare in that day, I was talking to someone about this the other day. I mean, I mean, they're swinging swords and throwing spears. And I mean, you want to talk about dangerous. This isn't standing back you know, with uh, guns and long distance artillery. These people would run at each other with swords and clubs and spears. David would have been safer swinging a sword and being in the midst of ancient warfare because that was the time when kings went out to war in the springtime. But instead, he chose to stay home during that time and not be engaged in the Lord's battles. And it's at that time, remember, he's bored. So he takes a little walk, an evening stroll, and lo and behold, by golly, there's Bathsheba. And this begins to be is that he sees Bathsheba. If he had been on the Lord's battlefield doing the Lord's work, keeping himself busy, he wouldn't have seen what he wasn't supposed to see, which would have started the temptation that led to the great downfall of David. And a good reminder for all of us. Look, isolation and idleness is no friend to any of us spiritually. When we begin to isolate or we begin to just begin to, you know, kind of become idle in some ways, that's never, ever a healthy thing spiritually. Much better to be busy, spent, and occupied for the Lord. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle time, idle hands, never good. And here, he's wandering. He's, what's he doing? He's down in Timnah among the daughters of the Philistines. He's among unsaved pagan women hanging out. And he sees a woman who's apparently very attractive. Verse 2, so he went up and he told his father and mother saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Now notice, these are the first recorded words of Samson. The Bible says what? Out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus said, 
the mouth speaks. You can tell a lot about a person by just listening to what they say. Here's the first recorded words of Samson, and look what they are. I've seen a woman. That's the first thing he says. I see a woman, a very attractive woman. And then his second words, get her for me. I saw her, get her. I saw her, I won her. He's a man who clearly you can see is driven and directed by the lust of his eyes and the lust of his flesh. He sees an attractive woman. He's aroused. He's interested. This is a Philistine woman. He knows nothing about her. All he knows is she's apparently a very attractive woman and his desires are aroused. His lusts are simulated, the lust of his eyes, the lust of his flesh. So right away, he just impulsively says to his parents, listen, I want her. Get me that woman as a wife. I, I, I want her. Go, go and arrange a marriage quickly in this day. Again, remember, parents typically, culturally, arranged marriages. So he says to his parents, listen, I, I found an attractive woman. Go get her for me. Again, showing you where Samson is at. He's driven, dominated by his passions rather than wise thinking or spiritually processing things. But again, he's where he shouldn't be. So because of that, his flesh is dominating him. And temptation is beginning to draw him in subtly. Verse 3, then his father and mother said to him, notice, is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that is among the Israelites, the people of God, that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? So what do his parents do? They do what any good parent should. They just, they just offer wise counsel to him. They speak into his life. They, they challenge his fleshly desires. They see that he's being driven by his passions, by his, you know, just the appetites of his carnal nature and not processing this in regards to what would please God. Or what would be God's will in this situation? Or more than that, what would God's word say in regards to these things? Again, remember, marriages with non-Israelites for God's people were forbidden in the word of God. So this was contrary to scripture. And again, keep in mind, as I said before, this was not anything to do with ethnic issues. It had nothing to do with ethnic or racial separation. It was a spiritual issue. They were not to marry and be unequally yoked to someone from another nation for one fundamental reason, because of the pagan worship and God didn't want their hearts being drawn away spiritually. Deuteronomy 7 said this clearly, 7, 3, and 4 of Deuteronomy. Nor shall you make marriages with them, that is the people of the lands. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your hearts your sons away, excuse me, from following me, God said, to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So God very clearly and very strongly gave a warning. Listen, he said to the parents, don't let your sons marry foreign, pagan, ungodly women. Don't let your daughters enter into marriage relationships with heathen men that don't worship and know the same God. And he says, because they will turn their hearts away from following the Lord and will cause God's anger and favor to be, in a sense, aroused and, and drawn away from them. And therefore, they will put themselves in a place where they can lead to, it says, a life of destruction where their lives would be destroyed. Now, Samson's family knew this, and this is why his parents are saying, what are you doing? You know God's word. 
says that this is not his will. Again, the Bible tells us the same in the New Testament. Paul writing to the Corinthians that we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers in a similar way. So they're challenging here. Look, what you're doing is your desires are contrary to Scripture. God's word forbids this. What are you doing? And, and what you're longing for is outside of God's will for your life. So they're providing accountability to him. This is a good thing. This is a good parent here. They're providing accountability. They're challenging his wrong ideas. And I'll tell you, to, to, to me, this is something that any wise child would appreciate, especially when it comes to making these kind of decisions like marriage. It's a pretty big one. Would you agree? Well, at least Rick agrees. <laughs> That's a pretty huge decision. It has a pretty major impact on your life. And so these parents here are saying, are you sure? What, what are you doing here? And kind of challenging and questioning that. Well, this shows you where the heart of Samson is. Look at verse 3 as it goes on. Samson said to his father, Dad, thank you for always being such a godly man. Thank you for loving me enough, Dad, to challenge me as your son and to offer me good counsel so that I don't sabotage my life and ruin my future or enter into a marriage that I should. God, Father, thank you for that. I appreciate your wisdom, Mom. Thank you, Father, for... Pre Look, Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she pleases me well. That's his response. Again, you see the revelation of the heart of Samson. What is it there? Samson, again, he's very, number one, he's very demanding. His response isn't even any appreciation to his parents. He just blows off their counsel. And you can tell someone's heart is not in a good place when they want nothing to do with accountability. When somebody offers them accountability or tries to speak some wisdom in their lives, and look, whether it's on the marriage topic or anything else, we all know, right, all of us who have kind of lived out our lives for a while, isn't it amazing how the older you get, the smarter your parents become? Right, all of a sudden, you know, you're, and then, you know, 15, they're just, they're just, they're completely just out of touch, just, just way out of, the, you know, the kind of stuff. Then, you know, you hit 20, 25, you say, like, wow, wow. I don't know, wow, they, I guess they kind of, yeah, they kind of, boy. And then as life goes on, the, long, the longer you go, the longer you just go, man, my parents are geniuses. Why did I miss half of what they taught me and told me and exemplified for me? And this is the case here. He wants nothing to do with their accountability. He doesn't want to hear what they have to say. And he brings a lot of grievances upon himself. And more than that, he hurts and harms a lot of people. People die and there are a lot of difficulties that come about because he just blows off his parents' counsel. He doesn't want to hear them because they're challenging what he desires. He wants this. And because he wants it and his desires are for it, his ears are just shut and it goes in one ear and right out the other and he just like water off his back. He doesn't want to hear anything. He just comes right back to get her for me. I don't care what you're saying. I don't care what God's word says. I don't want to hear about wisdom. Just get me what I want. Why? For she pleases me well. So he's got a demanding attitude and notice he's very self-serving. She pleases what? Me. Wait a minute. What about does she please the Lord? Does she, does she please you, mom and dad? I mean, there's a sense of submitting to your spiritual authority in my life. I mean, does, he doesn't want to submit to his parents. He doesn't want to submit to the Lord. He's just self-serving and all he cares about is what pleases me, get me what pleases me. That's what I want. Well, verse four says, but his father and mother didn't know, we get this disclaimer, that it was of the Lord. 
that he was seeking, that is God was, an occasion to move against the Philistines for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So the Bible gives us this little insight and be careful here. This is not saying that God was causing Samson to desire something that's contrary to his word or that God was directing Samson to break his word or violate the will of God. However, what this is just saying in the overall sovereign picture of God is God was even going to use Samson's error and his disobedience and even his wrong choices to still orchestrate his will and his purposes long term. In other words, even though what Samson was doing was really dumb and quite technically very wrong, it wasn't still going to frustrate the purposes of God and hinder what God was going to do. God intended to begin to bring deliverance from the Philistines and God was still going to do it in spite of Samson. This is the idea here, is what the Bible is trying to tell us, is God doesn't condone his disobedience or carnal activity, but he can take those things even and overrule the outcomes still in his sovereign circumstantial plans. And God turned even so uh, Samson's bad decisions he turned his bad decisions still ultimately into the things that would be used for his good purposes. Ephesians 1 says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Proverbs says this in chapter 19 verse 21. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. Again, it says the same thing. Proverbs 21 verse 30. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. And isn't it somewhat of a comforting thing to be able to rest in the fact that even when bad decisions are being made, even when uh, you know disobedient things are happening that we wish weren't happening, and sometimes we watch other people and think, no, what are you doing? To realize that God is so awesome, so superintending, that, that we don't have to freak out and worry that, oh my goodness, this is that it's going to totally all go down the tubes. Now, all these great plans and purposes, God, no, it's not. God is a master chemist, and boy, he can mix things together and pull strings and push buttons, and, and still, the Bible says he can use the wrath of man to praise him. That's how God can work still. And so God was still going to use even what Samson was doing to bring about his purposes in the midst of it. And what a great encouragement if we have made, like Samson, some bad decisions that we can't go back and unwind to realize it doesn't mean all hope is lost. God can still work things out and bring things back together if we humble ourselves. And what a wonderful thing. He can still bring a hope in the future even when we make poor choices. Now, that's not permission to make bad choices, so don't misquote me. That's not what I'm saying. You're just going to get battle scars you don't want. Verse 5, so Samson, notice, it goes on, went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, wait a minute, here we go again. What are you doing in a vineyard? You're a Nazarite. He has no, look, he has no care or concern for his Nazarite separated vow to God. He's walking around the vineyard. I mean, that's a... I know I have a, a, a struggle with alcohol and I don't want to drink, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to check out all the local bars in town. I mean, the, he's walking through a vineyard. He's to have nothing to do with these things. He has a life that is supposed to be separated unto God. He's walking around vineyards. Well, when you're in the wrong place, notice what happens. Now, to his surprise, a young lion... <laughs> 
came roaring out against him. Interesting, Peter talks about that we should be sober and vigilant because our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When we're in the wrong place, sometimes we may get surprised when the roaring lion shows up to start trying to devour our lives in some ways. But look at God's graciousness despite this. Verse 6, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. This was part of Samson's experience. The Spirit of God just powerfully coming upon him with great anointing. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart. The idea is with his bare hands as one would have torn apart a young goat. I don't know what that's like. I haven't torn apart a young goat recently. Though he had nothing in his hand. Can you imagine that YouTube video? I mean, just, he, he just, with his bare hands, this guy just takes out a lion with no weapons. He just has superhuman strength because it's supernatural strength. And again, as I pointed to, a lot of times people have this concept of Samson that he's this guy from Gold's Gym with big muscles. Again, where did his supernatural strength come from? From God. It was the Spirit of the Lord upon his life that allowed him to do above and beyond what could be asked or thought as God's power worked. This is where I think the source of his strength came from. We keep seeing this power in his life throughout, but sadly, if he would have been more consecrated to God and acknowledged that, much, much more could have come. So he kills this lion, verse 6, notice, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Now why? Because first of all, what was he doing in the vineyard? So, so now he's not telling his parents what he's done. I want you to notice the digression here of what's going on. You'll see the same thing in verse 9. He, he didn't tell his parents what he had done. He, he's keeping secret what he's doing. And let me just say something, very important principle. Whenever you are keeping something secret from people that are close to you and that you love, that should be an indication something is wrong. When you can't tell people you love what you're doing, what you're involved in, and you need to start keeping secrets and you can't tell people what you've done or what you're doing, that's a big warning sign. It's because you're doing something that's not healthy. Because we're to live in the light. We're to live open and, 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 and when we begin to hide things or have to keep secrets or not tell people what we've done or what we're doing, why can't you tell people? Especially those closest to you. If you can't share with those closest to you what's going on, then there's a sense of maybe some shame or guilt or that you're trying to hide something and that is usually a big indication that if you're hiding your actions, you are headed in a wrong direction and certainly headed into trouble. So verse 7 says, then he went down and he talked with the woman. And notice, she pleased, verse 7, she pleased him, Samson, well. Again, doesn't say she pleased the Lord. She pleased Samson. But this was the struggle with Samson. He wasn't interested in what pleased the Lord. He was a man who constantly fell prey to his passions and he succumbed to what pleased him. It was this struggle in his life that was a great Achilles heel. She pleased Samson well. And after some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So this is a little bit of the pride of life coming out now. He's got to go back and see his trophy. Nobody knows about this lion. I remember that lion. I remember tore that thing apart with my hands. So he wants to go check it out. I wonder if that thing's decomposing yet. So he wanders off the path, again, not telling anyone. He wants to go check out his little trophy that he hasn't told anyone about because he was in the vineyard when it happened. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. Remember, a dead animal. 
Verse 9, he took some of it in his hands and he went along eating. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them. And they also ate, again, verse 9, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of a lion. Again, why didn't he tell them? Because he's not supposed to be touching dead things. That's another part of his Nazarite vow. But again, he's interested in, again, the appetite of, oh, look at that. Not only is this, now there's a, bee, a little beehive in this thing and some honey in it, and he's satisfying his appetite and indulgence, and now he's sharing it with his parents. But again, he's not sharing with his parents what's really going on. He's hiding He's keeping it from them because they would have no doubt probably rebuked him again. And this just points to the fact again, verse 6 and verse 9, not telling. It indicates he's a man who does not want accountability. That's why he's not telling people what's going on in his life. He doesn't want accountability. You know, it's interesting. Proverbs 18 tells us a very uh, important thing in regards to accountability and isolation and this kind of danger. Listen to Proverbs 18. It says this, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and he rages against all wise judgment. Whenever isolation begins to happen, the Bible says it is never typically a good thing. He who isolates himself, it's because they're seeking their own desire because you don't want someone to challenge what you're doing and you're raging typically against wise judgment. And here, Samson's a picture of someone who does not want accountability as he now takes this honey, doesn't tell his parents, shares it with him. Verse 10 goes on, So his father went down to the woman and Samson gave a feast there. For young men used to do so. This was customary for a wedding, a seven-day feast, as we'll see. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. So again, uh, why the Philistines have to supply companions, maybe because none of uh, Samson's Jewish friends would have said, yeah, I agree with that marriage. I'll be your best man and your groomsman and so forth. So they have to supply 30 companions uh, for this bridal celebration and this marriage feast that's going to take place. And probably those 30 companions from the Philistines standpoint is to guard this shady guy, Samson, because what is this Jewish guy doing down here marrying one of our Philistine gals? And they probably knew uh, that maybe they needed to keep an eye on him. So these might have somewhat been guards as well. Well, Samson, to try and make light of this rather awkward, unusual uh, marriage ceremony, it says, said to the 30 companions, let me pose a riddle to you. We're going to be here for a week, having a marriage feast, using a feast for a week, celebrate the marriage for an entire week. Everyone would come together and at the end of the seven days, then the couple would consummate the marriage sexually and that would sort of be the actual solidification of the marriage. So he says, let's have a little fun. Let me pose a riddle to you. And if you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing, one for each of you. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, Sounds good. Pose your riddle that we may hear it. We're into a little bit of fun. Let's do it. So he said to them, verse 14, out of the eater came something sweet and out of the strong came something to eat. So out of the eater, the lion, we know what that means, came something to eat and out of the strong, the lion again came something sweet. He's talking about that honey he just got out of the lion that nobody else knows about, about other than him because he was off in a vineyard where no one saw him. Now, the, for three days, it says, they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the seventh day, they couldn't figure this out. They're starting to sweat now. Oh, my goodness, we're going to have to 
pay up on the bet here. They came to Samson's wife and they said to her, entice your husband. They know the power of persuasion of a woman. Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us. They, they then threaten her or else we will burn you <laughs> and your father's house with fire. Now, it gives you a little bit of an idea what the Philistines were like. Tell us the solution of this riddle or we're going to kill you and your entire household. We're going to burn you alive with fire. Have you invited us, they say, in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? In other words, are you trying to insult us and rob us? You better give us the answer. So they're pressuring his wife. Well, verse 16, it wasn't just their pressure of her. She apparently is aware of this and it's bothering her all week long that he won't tell her. It's the last day that they finally press her really to make her act. But it seems that all week she knows this riddle thing is going on among the guests. And she's probably all week been wanting him to include her and to tell him and she's not and he's not or whatever. And this is really starting to grate on her personally uh, because he's not sharing as her future husband here. So verse 16, look what it says. It says, then Samson's wife wept on him. So the tear work started. And she said, you only hate me. You don't love me. You've posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you've not explained it to me. And he said to her, look, I've not explained it to my father or my mother. So should I explain it to you? Now, clearly, he's not ready for marriage. Can you tell I me? Mean, this guy knows nothing. That was a bad answer. That was not a good answer. <laughs> Well, what are you crying about? I haven't even told my mom or dad. You know, just, I mean, this guy, he should have, he's not ready. He didn't have any premarital counseling. You could totally tell this is a bad marriage situation. So he says, look, I haven't even shared with those closest to me, my own parents. Why should I explain it to you? Well, verse 17, now she wept on him the seven days while the feast lasted. So she's, this routine went on seven days straight. And that'll wear a guy down after a while, no doubt. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her. Notice the Bible says, the Holy Spirit's direct, because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So she pushes and presses and pushes and presses and pushes and presses and cries and continues to kind of badger him verbally. And eventually he just says, okay. And he shares the answer to this riddle with her and she then goes and shares the information with the Philistine men who wanted the answer. Now, let me just say this and just a, a word of wisdom to the ladies since we're certainly pointing out weaknesses in Samson's character as well. I want you to notice this doesn't work out well. She badgers her husband, she pushes her husband, she presses her husband, she keeps pushing and pressing and pushing, and the Bible says she pressed him so much, she eventually got what she wanted. She pressed him, she pressed him, she pressed him, she pressed him, and eventually she pressed him so much, she pressed the button, which is, I'm going to lose my mind, you can just have your way. And she got her way, but it caused a lot of unhealthy things to happen. So let me just say, ladies, it's good to talk to your husband. It's good to communicate. It's good to share. It's okay to, but be careful of pressing and pressing and pressing and pressing when you want something because sometimes you may press and ultimately push the right button to get what you bet, what you want, but that may be the button for nuclear explosion. 
and it could cause major problems. So, so be careful. Use discretion. She gets eventually what she wants. The riddle is told. She goes and shares the riddle with her people. So the men of the city, it says, verse 18, said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, last minute now, here they come in with the answer before the bet is going to be closed out. What is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? So they pose the answer to his riddle. And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, <laughs> this guy really knows nothing about marriage, you would not have solved my riddle. If, I mean, talk about awkward. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. Now, again, there's poetic language even in this, one way or the other. You know, Calling your wife a heifer I don't think is ever a really good idea, certainly in front of other men and other people in public. But typically, you know, they didn't work and plow fields with a heifer, so that would be something that would be out of protocol. And again, he said, you, you went out of bounds here, man. You cheated. You pushed my wife. You didn't figure that out. So he's saying, look, you broke the rules, man. You went out of bounds and did something that's not the appropriate protocol of how to do things. So this enraged him. Verse 19, the spirit of the Lord then came upon him mightily. Again, the spirit comes upon him. That super strength comes to him again. He went down to Ashkelon. That's about 30 miles away. And he killed 30 of their men and took their apparel and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So notice the result of Samson's little game, Samson's wrong antics and getting himself into the situation and then his wife on top of him pressing and pressing. Look what happens. 30 innocent people die. He goes and murders 30 people just to get their clothes to pay off his bet. So again, look at the, there are ramifications to heading down paths that we shouldn't go down. I mean, people here, innocent individuals lose their lives because in rage, he has to pay off this bet that he was into now. And verse 19 goes on to say, so his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So basically what happens, Samson is so enraged and he's so angry, he says, that's it, I don't care about this. And he gets so mad, he just goes back home to his parents' house and he says, forget it, I'm done with it. And he basically has an angry temper tantrum. He walks off the marriage feast on the seventh day, apparently never consummates the marriage sexually, which was what would happen at the end to kind of seal the marital relationship. And the father, not wanting to be disgraced, having paid all this money for the seven-day feast and all these companions and people there, he's like, we, we pay for a wedding. There is going to be a wedding. So he grabs the best man to save face and he says, you marry her. He left her at the altar. You're going to marry her. We spent a lot of money on this seven-day feast. She's getting married. Princess is getting herself a husband. So Samson stomps off angry and now she's given to the best man. Well, chapter 15, again, no chapter breaks. After a while in the time of the wheat harvest, when it was incredibly dry in the crops and fields, it happened that Samson visited his wife. So he's thinking, I'm still legally married. Yeah, I stormed off before we consummated the, the marriage vows, but he thinks he's still legally married. So he returns now to visit his wife. He brings along a, a young goat. I guess that was like a bottle of perfume or flowers in that day. He wants to smooth things over. I just bring her a little goat. That always fixes things like a box of chocolates, right? Or a Hallmark card. He brings a young goat and he says to his father-in-law, let me go into my wife. 
into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I, I gave her to your companion. And then he offers a possible solution. Is not her younger sister better than she? <laughs> How about the younger sister? She needs to get married too. Look, she, you know, what do you think? I mean, maybe she looks a little more your style. Isn't she better? Maybe she's a little more attractive. How about the younger one? You know, you, yeah, you lost out on that, but I have another daughter. How about the next in line? Is the younger sister he proposes? Why not take the younger sister and marry her? Please, take her instead. Well, Samson now is irate. It says, he said, this time I shall be blameless or guiltless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Now, why is he so angry? I can tell you, on top of his own personal pride being assaulted and all that kind of stuff, because again, in marriages in that day, culturally as well, they paid this thing called a bride price, a dowry. So they put out a lot of money to get this bride. And now he didn't get the wife and notice the father didn't say, and you know what, Samson, I'm sorry about all the you know, issues. That, I'll tell you what, let, let me go down to the you know, local bank. We'll draw out the dowry. We'll settle up. I'll write you a reimbursement check. He, doesn't, he just says, how about my younger daughter? So he doesn't get his dowry money back. So he feels, you're ripping me off all that money I just gave you, and I don't even get a woman in the deal. I don't even get a wife out of it. So he's irate at this point because he feels he's been robbed and taken advantage of. He lost the dowry money. He didn't get the woman that he apparently was very interested in from the start. So again, he's been insulted. He feels he's been stolen from. And again, what else? This is a man, Samson, who when he wants something, he wants what Samson wants. And Samson didn't get what he wants. So he's angry. Verse 4 says, So he went and he caught 300 foxes and he took torches and he turned the foxes tail to tail. Imagine this. He tied their tails together and he put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set the torches on fire, he then let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyard and the olive groves. So he, he really interesting. It's like a boyhood prank. I mean, this guy was into stuff. He so he takes and again. He knows the fields are dry at this time, and this would wreak horrible devastation, which would be a very costly, expensive loss for them. He takes foxes, and he doesn't just tie a torch to each one's tail and let it run. He ties two tails together because he knows then they'll just go crazy, you know, trying to jump all around, getting away from each other, and the fire would just spread rapidly and all this as the standing grain the vineyards and the olive groves are ruined and, and catch on fire this very dry time of the wheat harvest to ruin their crops and the Philistines verse 6 says who has done this and they answered Samson the son-in-law of the Timnite because he's taken his wife and given her to his companion so the Philistines look what they do now they come up and they burn her and the father with fire so now the wife he wanted and the prior father-in-law, they're both put to death. And the threat that was made earlier is carried out. They're now burned alive. More people dead in the process. More people hurt and harmed in the process. You see the ripple effect of being governed by our passions and our sinful nature? And thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I know God's word says, but I really have a strong desire. And, and it'll all work out in the end. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it'll all work out. I mean, and, 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 and yeah, people are trying to say to me, listen, what are you doing? That's not wise. I wouldn't do that. Well, yeah, I mean, I know you're saying that, but look, trust me, it's all going to work out. I, 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 it's all going to work out for me. 
It doesn't look like it's working out too well so far. People are dying. Things are getting ruined. There's loss. There's pain. There's havoc. It says now the father and his wife that he wanted to marry are burned alive. Well, verse 7, Samson then again, he's further enraged. The wrath of man continues on. Since you would do a thing like this, the idea is to be that brutal, I will surely take revenge on you. And after that, I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh. Now that's a Hebrewism there, which refers to, you know, sort of like wrestling. We, we would say today, people fought hand-to-hand combat. That, that's the idea there. He attacked them hand-to-hand combat, hip and thigh, with a great slaughter. And then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. So he kills more Philistines. Verse 9, now the Philistines went up and encamped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So they answered, we've come up to arrest Samson. He's hiding out among you to do to him as he has done to us. And 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, notice he's hiding in Judah 3,000 people to go get one man. It shows you, again, the idea that they have of what Samson's capable. 3,000 men go and say to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? Again, they had become comfortable with this substandard living of oppression from their enemies. What are you doing? You're, you're causing problems for us, man. What are you doing? What is this you've done to us? And he said, well, as they did to me, so I've done to them. Well, that's a spiritual attitude, isn't it? What a great spiritual leader. This is what I do. Whatever people do to me, I just give it back to them a hundredfold. <laughs> As they've done to me, I do to them. But they said to him, we have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, no, we won't do that. We'll just tie you secretly and deliver you into their hand. They can kill you. <laughs> they could be guilty for it. But we will surely not kill you. So they bound him with new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And when they came to Lahai, the Philistines came shouting against him. Again, verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire. They just melted off, the picture is, and his bonds broke loose from his hands at this time. Again, notice the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and what bound him he had the power to be set free from. Of course, we understand Samson's doing things that aren't well here, but let's not miss the picture. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he was bound, and he breaks free by the power of the Spirit of the Lord. In the same way, when things bind us, it's the power of the Spirit of the Lord that helps us be set free from the things that are sort of binding us. And when he's set free, it says, verse 15, he then found a fresh, the ideas of a recently dead animal a fresh jawbone it wasn't brittle of a donkey and he reached out his hand and took it and he killed a thousand men with it one man with a jawbone now i want you to keep in mind of something samson is it says killing a thousand men by himself with a jawbone of a donkey remember what we said before the philistines were people who were advanced technologically in warfare, these people were iron smelters in a very advanced way. They had strong weaponry. This is why they oppressed Israel for 40 years. And now here, one man 
with something as simple and weak as a, a jawbone of an animal, like a sense of brass knuckles, he just takes out a thousand men as this supernaturally empowered warrior and wins this great victory and shows here. Again, this is like a 1 Corinthians chapter 1 thing where, where God uses the weak things of the world to overcome the mighty. The foolish things of a jawbone? <laughs> yeah, a jawbone with a man who is spiritually empowered by the Lord is able to do great and incredible things. So Samson said, verse 16, with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, the idea is heaps of bodies, with a jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. Oh, there's another weakness, Samson. I what about the spirit of the Lord? You did it with a jawbone of a donkey. You think it was you? Yes, I'm skilled. I had training. Remember, I'm in, you know, I have special. Samson, it was the spirit of the Lord. And again, here he is taking credit for what God did in his life. And so it was when he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath Lahai. And he became very thirsty and cried out to the Lord. One of only two times we see Samson actually pray in his whole life. And he said, you've given me this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lahai. He split the rock and water came out miraculously and he drank and his spirit returned and he revived. And therefore he called its name En Hakure or spring of the caller, the idea is which is in Lahai to this day, and he judged Israel for 20 years in the time of the Philistines. So one of only two times we ever see Samson pray. But notice God in his grace answers still his humble prayer, even though the guy wasn't even in a right place. Isn't it amazing how merciful God is? That even if we're not in the right place, if we humble ourselves before the Lord and we cry out to him in our need, how God so often is still very gracious to us and he splits open this rock and water comes forth to quench his thirst. And again, what can I just say here? What a beautiful picture that water comes forth, he drinks, his spirit returns, and he revives. What a beautiful picture at times is the Holy Spirit at times is pictured as water that quenches our thirst. And to think how at a man with humble need cries out to the Lord, I'm thirsty. And God provides the water to drink and his spirit returns and he revives. In the same way you and I much can do the same. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And the Spirit of God does the same, quenches our thirst, and it's the Spirit that brings revival to us as well. Well, let's stand, let's pray together.